This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. podcast. In today's episode, we are recording live and we are discussing the pluses and minuses of rapid toilet training from Fox and Azarin. This is Megan. And this is Joe. This is where we blast off to the final frontier in search of improving ourselves in the field of behavior analysis. Thank you for spending time with us. Now let us begin. So first, we just we need to catch up a little bit, huh, Joe? It's been a few weeks since we've recorded an episode. Yes, it has. I mean, we did We'll Decide Wednesday, but that's always so quick for us. Uh, so let's let's catch up. Let's let's talk about you know what's going on in our lives. Um, there's a few really cool things that has happened since last time we talked. Uh, do you want what what what's going on going on with you? What how are you doing? You know, <laughs> I feel like every time you ask me, I'm just like, I live in Florida, Joe. That's how I'm doing. Um, oh, I am yeah, excited. That's true. As we're recording this, it's August 1st. <laughs> Who knew <laughs> in August we'd still be at home? I'm not excited about that. But I'm excited <laughs> for the first time, and I don't know how long. I have the house to myself for like seven hours because Taylor's with my parents, and Blake is out like looking. He wants to get a boat, so he went to go look for a boat. Um, so I am here. I've not had this much time to myself, but usually I'll get like an hour or two if Blake like drops Taylor off at my parents, but that's it. <laughs> so I'm here <laughs> about that. I see Kelly, Brittany, and Julie just joined our live feed. So hello. Thanks for watching. What about you, Joe? What? I, I really don't have any exciting things. Uh, we do. I actually, I lied. I also had a really cool conversation with Stephanie Bolden yesterday, um, who's planning some new activities for do better around addressing racism. So we have some more stuff in the works for that as well. So I'm excited. I just put out before we started recording today, a new uh, reading group that we're starting for do better. So we'll be focusing on different topics relating to racism at first, but additional social justice type issues uh, as we progress. And Stephanie's choosing a lot of the initial readings and whatnot based on what she has um, found to be meaningful for her and to help people really dive in and learn more. That's an exciting development. That is awesome. I just joined this morning. So if you guys want to join that, I would definitely, Megan, what's the group's name? It's called a hashtag do better movement reading to action. <laughs> I'm not good at creating short things. They all, they're always long, but I'll post the link in the comments. Awesome. So definitely, if you want to go ahead and join, do it. I, I will, I definitely joined. I want to learn more and, um, I love to read and learn. So, um, this will be a great group for you to join and be a part of. So on my side, um, 
there's a lot of cool things happening. Still, some of it staying home. Like, so since COVID happened, I was really able to sit down and watch more Netflix because everything's shut down. Uh, movie theaters are shut down. And my wife and I love to uh, go out. And our typical date is we go to a movie theater called Cinema Cafe, which is really cool. They have these really nice leather seats. You can pre-order your seat before you go to movie theater. Uh, when you get there, you order the food, your drinks, um, and then you sit down, sit down. I mean, sit back, relax, and watch a movie. Movie in these recliners, and then they'll bring the food and drinks out to you. And it's like the best, like date you can like you can participate in. I love it um, because we're both big movie people and. Just being able to sit in a movie while eating, it, it, it eliminates a lot of, um, you know, going from this place to this place, back to this place. So it's definitely like one of our favorite dates to participate in. But since, since it closed down, um, we love to watch Netflix shows. Um, and one of our favorite shows just was released on actually yesterday called the umbrella academy um if any listeners out there know what the umbrella academy is and have anything to say about it, go ahead and drop it in the in the comments below but we love it it's an absolutely like and it's an absolute absolute ride throughout the whole tv show so i was thinking like yes yesterday was gonna be date date night and guess what, Megan? What? She proceeded to tell me that she spent um, earlier part of the day watching the whole season by <laughs> herself. I should have guessed that based on our previous conversations. Yes. And um, I, I seriously was like dumbstruck and was like, you really did that to me? You watched the whole season without me? How can you? I was like, you know, I'm like always on the go. And I'm like, it's hard for me to watch a show. So she's like, don't worry, I'll, I'll watch it with you. So that's what we did last night. We started watching Umbrella Academy together. Well, I'm My glad first she still watched it with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that she still watches it with me. But I mean, I just like, she always does it to me. Like, it's so hard for me to watch Netflix. And she gets ahead on these seasons. Um, I, I, she just goes with the seasons and watch them all. So that's that's something new. We've been, we want to, we keep on we have been going on kayaking trips and then um i'm super excited about faba coming up um in september i just signed yes. up i'm super excited to uh for them do, still doing it on live and being able to be participating and watching all the great presenters so i'm looking forward to that yes super excited if you haven't registered for faba yet definitely check it out um faba world Dot org, I believe is their address. Uh, I don't know if they still have the $75, but it was $75 for two days and you get CEs. And if it's gone up, if the early registration's over, it's still probably going to be super affordable. <laughs> so yeah, check it I out. Mean, uh, Steven Foreman, myself, and probably a few others will also be planning some social events for that time frame. You know, we might do some lip sync, uh, karaoke type stuff again, or um, come up with some new ideas. So definitely looking forward to September. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and jump in, Megan, to 
into today's episode. What do you think? Sounds good. So as we've mentioned, we're talking about toilet training today. It's such a broad topic. I focused our conversation around rapid toilet training because this comes up quite a bit in our field. And I thought that would be a good starting place. We can always do follow-up episodes or another webinar or something on this if people are interested. But I did want to give a little bit of background for, you know, kind of why I suggested this topic for Joe and I to talk about. So I was doing Two Minute Tuesday this past week on our Life Tribe page, and I was reviewing the book Toilet Training in Less Than a Day. So every Tuesday, I do a two-minute like book share, and that was the book that was next on the list. I almost didn't cover the book because I've seen various concerns brought about from the neurodiversity movement and Amazon reviews from just great, you know, parents of typically develop, developing children. And they're not very glowing of this toilet training procedure. Um, I didn't really use a whole lot of it when I toilet trained Taylor either. But I think it's an important book to read in our field for historical context. And there are some aspects of it that are important to know about when you're doing toilet training. So for that quick little two minute Tuesday, I created a list of five pluses and five minuses. And I just thought it'd be helpful to go into a bit more detail around that on this podcast episode, because clearly in two minutes, I did not dive deep into that. Uh, what about you, Joe? Why, why do you want to talk about toilet training? Well, for me, like I want to talk about toilet training because I do not know much about it. Um, being a new BSBA, one of the things I want to learn is what procedures are out there for toilet training. Um, I want to know the good and the bad so I can have a good conversation with um, parents that I work with. And also it would be nice to know what procedures are effective. So then whenever I have my own children one day, um, I can implement these procedures with my wife, um, and children and, you know, be able to be able to talk to her and be, be like, love, this is what we need to do with our child. And this is why, and this is the data that supports it. So, um, that's why I think it would be really interesting to talk about this. Um, and it's important because it's one of those, um, one of those procedures that is necessary if our learners have a deficit in this skill. So. Excellent. I love it. And I like that you're preparing for the future and, um, you know, potential toilet training <laughs> escapades that you'll have, whether it's with clients or children. So yeah. before we dive in on the procedures and what we are going to do today, I wanted for us each to share our background with rapid toilet training. So for those of you who are watching live, thanks for joining us. We are talking about rapid toilet training, which is a procedure that doctors Fox and Azrin published in 1971. And they published journal articles on it. And then they also published a book and it's a best-selling book. It's one of the best examples of our science going mainstream that's out there. So many people in the, you know, just parenting communities have read this book that, that know nothing about behavior analysis and Fox and Azarin are two psychologists who, who put together these procedures. So my background with rapid toilet training, I went before I even went to grad school, I had all my clients were pretty much early intervention. So we did what was called potty parties, 
with our little ones prior to going to that was for me prior to going to school for behavior analysis. By and large, they were fairly effective. I I had three clients that all had potty parties at the same time, essentially, because they were around the same age. And two of the clients, it was like super smooth, um, no, no difficulties. And then um, one client, it, it was a bit of a struggle. Everything with that particular client was a bit of a struggle. And we'll talk about some of the issues when we go in a little bit further detail about the procedures. I also read the research from Fox and Azarin in grad school and all of the toileting procedures in grad school were primarily based on the procedures used in the article. In grad school and after, though, I always had concerns with the punishment components, and we will talk about that more later when we talk about the actual procedures that are in place. Um, but I, I, the question that always was spinning in my head as I read about that aspect of the procedures was, this is a skill acquisition program, so why are we punishing things? Like, and when I do matching or tacting or puzzles or whatever other skill acquisition program, if the learner makes a mistake, we correct them. We do not do like positive practice or uh, disapproval in like a neg- really negative way. We just say, oh, let's try again or, oh, it's this one. So why for such a critical skill that a learner has never had exposure to in their lives when in fact, their history is the opposite where they've been taught to pee in their pants, right? Like in <laughs> diapers, we're going to bring in punishment. Like that just didn't ever go well for me. So um, I, I'll dive in on that in a little bit more. Um, and I always, um, whenever like I was, you know, provided training on this framework, or this, this particular set of procedures, I always saw it as this is an example of how you can do toilet training as opposed to you must follow these procedures. This is the only way to do toilet training. And um, I do think that there are some critical features that I've learned over the years, whether it's from, you know, we want to credit the rapid toilet training, which I think we kind of need to because that's where it first started or other researchers, but these are some of the critical features that I've seen with toilet training over the years. One, no diapers. The diapers have to go. If you're trying to do (laughs) toilet training, diapers cannot exist. Maybe overnight, but that's it. And there's an article from Greer, Nider, and Dozier from 2016 where they did a component analysis. Um, I'll talk about that a bit more too, but they also like had, that was like one of their main findings personal account, my own personal (laughs) child. Yes, because I could not get my family on board with, hey, he needs to just be in underwear and we're going to have to deal with the accidents. And it wasn't until everyone finally was like, oh man, we really need to get into underwear that he like, you know, started regularly using the toilet. And just with clients too, we've had situations where families are on board and then they, you know, we're there to help and then we leave and they put the child right back into diapers once we leave and then everything's undone that we made success in. Uh, we also, one of the critical features, again, this is from my own observations. I, I don't think there's any additional research on these aspects, but looking at um, teaching the learner how to recognize if they're wet or dry and reinforcing staying dry. So I think that's a a critical skill. If you don't have that like awareness to like even understand that you've peed, (laughs) that you're wet, (laughs) then that's going to make it difficult to to do toileting. Now we can discuss further how to do that and make sure it's being done in a way that's respectful 
of the learner, but that is a, a critical skill. I, I don't I'm really, I haven't seen much progress with toileting if that's not something that the learner recognizes. And then the last one is understanding of why the learner isn't using the toilet. So for some, it may just be developmental. They're only two, they're only three. They've never been taught to use the toilet before. <laughs> this is, this is it. For some, it may be aversive and, you know, attempts maybe have been made in the past, but they avoid the toilet at all costs. Uh, for some, there may be skill deficits around recognizing bodily functions. Mm -hmm. There might be some medical issues and the list goes on and on. But I think a lot of people don't approach their toileting protocols with that in mind. It's just like, you know, a family or a client indicates that as a preference. And then it's like, okay, let's hit the ground running with a toileting procedure. But there's not like the analysis we would typically do for other skills of like, well, why? <laughs> Why is this a thing that's not happening? So sorry, my answer was very long, but that's my background with rapid toilet training. What about you, Joe? So my background is so much shorter than yours because um, A, I have never conducted toilet training procedures before with a younger client. Um, it was never something that I we discussed while taking my coursework because we were, were more focused on the task list. Um, and the most I have ever done with some type of toilet training or something along that lines is I have conducted training on wiping in the past. But other than that, I don't have kids. Um, I never been around whenever my, uh, my friends are doing toilet training, um, with their young, with their son or daughter. So, um, I'm new to this. This is a new fresh perspective for me just to look at the research and and just all the different procedures i will say megan like the like the past two days i am just so overwhelmed with all the information out there <laughs> we had two good points in the comments that i'm going to touch on real quick before we go to the next thing so kelsey said i think they referring to diapers i think they can be around and you can do a slower approach um she found it reduced barriers a lot to do a few hours a day of the schedule and staying home all day was no good for any of us. That is a great point. It, just like I mentioned, you might need diapers for overnight. You might like understanding that you're going to see slower progress with it, but you might have like a schedule where it's like, okay, from 8am to 12pm, no diapers. And then from 12pm on, we're like out and about and we need to put on a diaper. But if it's willy nilly, which is what was happening for me, <laughs> or constant diaper yeah. <laughs> uh, existence, then that's not like I've never seen that be successful where the, you know, a, a, either for my own son or families I've worked with, they refuse to go to underwear ever, like at all, they yeah. just want to try to get toilet training happening in a diaper. And that's typically not successful because of that history of like, when you feel a diaper on you, like this is where I pee. Um, and you also just don't get those same like bodily sensations of, yeah. um, you know, feeling, oh, ooh, I'm wet. <laughs> ooh, I gotta go. Um, so, it, it, you know, conditioning that makes it a little bit more difficult as well. Um, and then there was one other one. Uh, generally said for many of my early learners, I use shaping to first teach tolerating the bathroom, teaching the learner to sit and it just develops from there. And that's a great point. That's actually one of the things we'll talk about as we get through our, our notes for today, um, shaping as always is usually <laughs> key to success in something like this. And then Megan, I, I also I'll already have a question for you. Um, okay. did you let Taylor choose 
the type of underwear he want or like make that kind of like reinforcing like what kind of big boy underwear do you want yeah so i do <laughs> most of our shopping is just done online before covid and definitely <laughs> now so yeah. i always ordered stuff but he was really into fire trucks and paw patrol so i ordered a bunch of um things based on his preferences and then he got to choose like which pair of underwear and of course like for Paw Patrol, he only wanted to wear Marshall, and there's only, like, one pair of Marshall underwear. And it's like, okay, well, keep Marshall dry then, because <laughs> once he's gone. Um, but, yeah, so I, I think that, that there's a book that I'm going to talk about at the end where that's one of the things they talk about doing is, you know, having that active participation with your child mm-hmm. can be really helpful, too, make it more motivating. Awesome. All right. So now what we're going to do is go step-by-step through the main components of the procedures for rapid toilet training. There are some blogs that are freely available, different parenting blogs that summarize toileting procedures, and several of them talk about the rapid toilet training. So those will be in the show notes. I'll link those to you all. And um, for those that are watching on Facebook Live right now, I'll try to drop those in the comments too, just in case you want to grab them now. And Um, so there's one particular blog that I just like used, you know, their particular format for this, but I, uh, I did want to mention, obviously, like, this is just like the short tidbits of like the steps and there, there is the whole book, the rapid toilet training. It's called, um, toilet training in less than a day. So, and they actually, I have it, I'll have it in our show notes too. They just re-released it in 2019 as like an updated version. So. I don't remember if the one I got on Kindle was the recently updated one or not. It, if it is, that's a problem because it still talks about mental retardation. So I'm hoping it's not. I'm going to have to look into that. Anyway, um, I also wanted to let you all know who are listening right now, we kind of tricked you. <laughs> the <laughs> primary purpose of this episode is not actually toilet training. Um, what we're going to do is demonstrate how we as behavior analysts can maintain healthy skepticism philosophical doubt and a commitment to humane practices while also being familiar with the research in our field and how we can train others on the existence of some of these seminal articles and procedures, especially ones that have made it to the mainstream public. So we're going to be talking about rapid toilet training, but we're also going to be modeling how you can critically consume research that you read instead of just blindly applying it with your clients. Perfect. And then there's a couple comments in the feed as well, uh, Megan. Um, so do you want me to go through that now? That's fine. Yeah. So Darcy said, I've been told in the past that the child needs to be able to pull up their own clothes after toileting. What are your thoughts on clients who may not be able to perform this, but still need to learn? For me, that would be based partially on the client's age when we're talking about, again, that humane perspective. And, you know, if it's a like a two or three-year-old or four or five-year-old even, it's c- pretty common, like development-wise, to, to not <laughs> necessarily be able to do that. Um, so I think as long as you're not placing that extra expectation, though, because sometimes people take toilet training and they take advantage of like, oh, well, they're going to, and this is what I was taught to do. Oh, they're going to be taking their pants on and off all day. This will be a great time to also learn how to dress themselves. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, we're already doing this like potentially aversive, like very time consuming thing of making them go to the bathroom all the time when they used to just pee in their pants. And now we also are going to teach them how to get dressed. 
So if you have a learner who really does struggle with it, um, make sure, you know, from the get that the expectation is like, you're learning how to pee in the potty and I'm helping you get dressed and undressed. If they're older, like teens or adults, it's also important to think about who all is going to be involved with that and like protecting their privacy, right? So mm-hmm. um, if it's already the case where someone is responsible for changing a diaper for this person and interacting in that way, maintain those same types of interactions if you're also working on like pulling pants up and down or, or whatnot and keep it with just like hopefully like one person. So just really taking into account I haven't done as much toilet training with adults as I have with little ones. So I'm not as on top of the, all of the considerations there, but that's definitely something you should be thinking about. How can we protect their privacy if you can't? um, And especially if they're very aware of what's happening, even if, even if it doesn't seem like they are, I should take that back. If you can't keep some privacy around it, I would first focus on addressing whatever skills are missing that are making it difficult for pulling up and down their pants. Because just overall, if they're a teen or an adult, that's something like if somebody, that means somebody's dressing them every day. And that's, you know, not very uh, positive to think about. But there are some people who have like very invasive motor uh, restrictions where like maybe they're paralyzed or something and they're getting, someone's dressing them, right? So there's a whole lot of variables that could come into that. But like my big one is make sure you're considering privacy. Yeah. Awesome. And then Melissa Powell said, uh, working with an older client now with many of the preliminary barriers. So this is super, super helpful working on discrimination training for wet and dry right now. Awesome. Um, Cindy Anna said, love the extra motivation to keep Marshall dry. Generally said, uh, I really like Pat Fry, Fry, Fryman's toileting protocols for boys from Boys Town. Yes. And then Generally, May uh, has a hands symbol and said this topic just got so much better. I think that's when I was talking about tricking everyone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm glad you like yeah. to be tricked, generally. <laughs> um, uh, Joe, did you have anything to add about like what our process is for today before I dive in on the steps? No, I just think as behavior analysts, I mean, we just need to have a healthy dose of this philosophical doubt and skepticism whenever we're researching and seeing I mean reading articles from the web because a lot there's so much information on the web and some of so much of it can be misleading or it can promise to be the best but above all we should really always try to implement what will work for our learner and what is the most humane treatment and um and procedure to implement and that won't bring harm to our our learners so I think this is going to be a fantastic uh, uh, webinar slash podcast to talk about. <laughs> it's, it's not a webinar right now, <laughs> although that oh, is true. an update. We forgot to mention that we are finally working on getting the podcast organized for CEs. And this is obviously one of the um, informative, qualifying uh, ones that will be available for yeah. CEs. Once we get all that situated, our goal is to have that done by September. So, all right. So let me say Facebook Live. There we go. Much better. <laughs> I just right. posted for those who are listening on Facebook. I just um, posted the link to the Boys Town toilet training, and that's actually something I have for our show notes too. And then these are all the different 
uh, blogs. So the Boys Town one is in there again, but different guides you can find online. And I know typically as behavior analysts, it's not like uh, our standard to just go look at, you know, parenting blogs, but actually each one of these contains references to literature and it's just written in a more like mainstream parent friendly way. So, and, and they provide, you know, kind of an unbiased overview of things as opposed to like if a behavior analyst is writing about rapid toilet training, if we're only in our perspective and our tunnel vision, we might talk about it very glowingly without necessarily thinking of some of the downsides. So I think sometimes it's helpful to look at, you know, what are the parenting blogs saying about whatever procedures so we can get a a different perspective. Um, Brittany also mentioned, she said, I feel like evidence-based doesn't always mean ethical. I feel like that's a whole separate topic that we could discuss. (laughs) So I'm going to make a note of that. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that is a whole different podcast. (laughs) All right. So let's dive in then on the rapid toilet training procedures. So the, um, the first kind of step, basically what we're going to do is talk about different components and then I'll pause and we will, we're just going to kind of talk about like, what are, what are our thoughts about this component? So the first component is is to make plans and set up your space. So don't just wake up one morning and be like, it's toilet training day. (laughs) Here we go. There should definitely be a clear plan and some prepping in place for this. I think we could all agree with that. So to, to summarize this component, there's a few Uh, bullet points that are mentioned around like, what does it mean to make a plan? So the first bullet point is to schedule a time of four to six continuous hours when you and your child can focus, be prepared to banish all distractions, including siblings and other family members. And this is um, from the blog that I linked. It's the parenting science blog. So in case anybody wants to kind of follow along with this, so I'm sort of pulling from there to just give us discussion points. So Joe, when you hear that schedule a time four to six continuous hours, when you and your child can focus, banish all distractions, including siblings and other family members. Um, First, why would we think that that's an important thing to do? But what issues could also arise just from that piece? Well, I would think it's important to have instructional control during this process. And then because you, because you want to have control and the learner to follow your directions, but it's also important to make control, control of reinforcers. Um, But I don't know about you, but this already sends a red flag to me. I mean, four to six hours, that's a lot of time in one room. Um, (laughs) Um, I know as a kid, why, I mean, especially an active kid, why would I want to stay in an area for four to six hours? If you would tell me to stay into inside a room that has like nothing for me, I'm not going to want to stay there. I will try to escape and try to like leave the room and, uh, and go do something else. And then if you're forcing me to stay in that room, I'll probably won't, you know, follow your direction anyways. Um, also I, for me, like my idea is like, it would be, I thought it would be better to do this in a, like in a bathroom environment instead of like in the living room or in the kitchen. I just think that, you know, it would be, um, if the, if I'm supposed to go to the bathroom in the bathroom, I would think that I would want to train in the bathroom. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. 
So um, I agree that whole like four to six hours with no reinforcement. So when we did the potty parties, we would set up like a very reinforcing environment. I don't ever remember doing it without distractions. Like we were <laughs> in people's homes. Like we're not going to yeah. be like move everyone and everything out of the way and be like, see y'all yeah. later. Like we're going to be over here toilet training for, for a few days. Like that's just not feasible. Um, yeah. And especially like a lot of the, the times when we're training, like a lot of the families I've worked with are military and a parent mm-hmm. is deployed. So it's like a single, you know, parent at the house. And then I've also obviously worked with families where there's just a single parent, you know, so there's one parent, potentially multiple children. <laughs> it just doesn't seem very feasible that um, you're going to be able to accomplish even that first little bit there. And I definitely um, agree about like, you, I already said this, but like, if you're ha- having all distractions gone, and it's not like very reinforcing, like, why would anyone want to stay in that environment. Now I do think the scheduling a time, like we already talked about that, where this is your focus, that is super important because I can tell you from my (laughs) own experience of trying to do it with Taylor, like I had to pick days where I knew like nothing else would be going on. We didn't have any other plans. I didn't have like work things that would be going on. I had to like set my phone aside so I wouldn't get distracted by that. Um, And I had to, to really, you know, put some good focus on it. Now that four to six hours, like obviously the more, the better, but again, we have to think about realisticness of this. So like one of the things I would want to consider with the families I'm working with, or if I'm in a school or whatever, you know, what is the realistic continuous hours stretch that we're going to do? In some cases, it might unfortunately only be an hour to start out with. Obviously that takes much away from the rapid piece of this, but um, but having that like framework of like there does it needs to be an agreed upon focus by everyone in this person's life so that we can all work together um, and like make this happen. I think I, I don't know how you could do it any other way. Yeah, I I, I don't either. Um, I have a there was two comments here. Darcy said that not sure how feasible that this is if they have other children, especially other little children which I agree. I don't know how that can be done. And then Amy said, what about if the only option is to conduct this in a center environment? Yeah. Um, And I I think that that should be fine. Um, We'll get into the location piece a little bit more here in a second. So if we don't answer your question, let us know. Um, One other thought I had about the banishing all distractions. I think I'm more of a, Let's try it as naturalistically as possible and then adjust accordingly. So with Taylor, for example, my son, when we did toilet training, I tried, I like all his toys were out, you know, everything was what it typically would be. Um, And then we did our dry pants checks and like sat on the toilet and all that kind of stuff. What I noticed was, yes, if he was playing, (laughs) he was much more likely to have an accident, but I didn't completely remove all of the distractions. What I did is based on the schedule we were currently on, I just adjusted. So if he was currently, you know, peeing every 15 minutes for whatever reason at around minute 10 from 10 minutes to 15 minutes, I would say like, okay, we're, we're not going to play for a little bit. We need to take a break. Um, And I would like try to sing him a song or like show him some pictures or do something like less, you know, where he's like so focused on what he's playing that he wouldn't realize he needs to pee. Um, and, and that's how we address that. So I think it's also important for each step that we talk about to look at like, this is like 
this recommendation or whatever, but like, we also need, we're in natural environments here too. So how can we do this in a way that is closest to the natural environment, but also successful? Perfect. But again, that does take away from the rapidness of it. Any changes you make from this are obviously going to take away from their rapid rapid, piece of it. Rapidness, but at the same time, I'm like, is rapidness necessary or is rapid necessary the best method out there? Exactly. Yeah, we're going to talk about that too. Yeah. All right. The next part says choose an appropriate training area. It should be in a room that is large enough to play in and relatively easy to clean. Um, Azrin and Fox suggest the kitchen. Um, So why would it be important to have like a training area and what issues could arise? Joe, you sort of touched on this already. I don't know if you want to expand upon that. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, for me, like for a a training area, you would want something where they know where the toilet's at to go. They know the place of it. Um, and then they know that, okay, this is the place I'm going to go to the bathroom. Um, my thing is also, if you do in the kitchen, you're training them to, that it's okay to go to potty in the kitchen. So, um, what's your thoughts? So yeah, mine's a little bit different on this one. I think having the training area, um, (laughs) is more like for me, it was more important for the person implementing it because if you know where your training area is, you're never that far away from the toilets. So it's easier to be successful. Right. And, uh, and this is mostly geared towards like, you know, three, uh, like 18 months to like five-year-olds. So um, obviously it's going to be different if you're working with uh, older learners, but in the context of like a young learner, especially if they're like three or younger, the, those little toilet potty chairs that you can move around the house. Like I would have been super unsuccessful if we didn't have one of those. Um, mm-hmm excuse me, in many cases, <laughs> for two <laughs> reasons. One, a lot of little ones don't want to be on that big potty. That's scary. Yeah. Um, and two, it just made it so much easier. So like if, if we were in the playroom, I could just have it right in there. If we were outside, I could have it outside. So I, I could just move that around. So I didn't necessarily, for me, it wasn't so much having a, tra- a specific training area as ha- making sure my supplies were wherever we were <laughs> so that yeah. I you know could adjust in that way. So I do I do think it's important to, for again, the implementer to like have an idea of like an action plan. Like, how are you getting to the bathroom or how are you getting on the toilet um, and, and planning around that? Also, though, again, I'm going to bring up that idea around making sure you're looking at your data. If your learner is going like an hour without using the restroom and staying dry, being in one location for hours on end when they don't even need to be seems very aversive to me. So knowing your data, maybe around, you know, 50 minutes, you would go closer to the bathroom, right? And like have some, you know, unique things set up near the bathroom or wherever your toileting space is so that you can uh, be successful. But if you're on like, you know, if you're the whole hour just staying in this one tiny spot and that's for hours on end, you're probably going to have, it's not going to be a fun experience for a lot of people. And that's also in the Amazon comments, which I know it's not research, but um, a lot of the parents were posting things like that. Like it, my kid didn't want to stay in one spot. <laughs> like, <why? laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I know you wouldn't. So why would our learners want to stay in one spot? Yeah. 
And then um, Darcy said, you can slowly shape to the bathroom once they are ready. I've run into kids who also have a strong aversion to the big toilet. Yep. And that's exactly what we typically do as well. Thank you for pointing that out. So again, with my own son, that's exactly what we did. We moved the, you know, and he, (laughs) he's just always pushing my buttons. He would be like, let's just bring the toilet out here. Like he just wanted it, like not in the bathroom, the little one, you know, and I'm just like, come on, man. Um, but so then, you know, we had to set a new rule. Well, you know, toilet stays in the bathroom. And then eventually I think we had to get rid of the, the little toilet before he would really consistently go on the big one. But anyway. okay. that's a great point because like, I, I mean, like I said, I never had this issue. So that's good to know that I could use those like little toilets and put them in different spots and it would be okay. Yes. Yeah. I actually, um, somebody, I can't remember where or why we were talking about this, but going back to that center question. Now this also brings up the, I, you know, about privacy and whatnot, but they, they were in like a preschool and, um, and she had like a, an area where like, if the learner was toilet training it was like their special area and they like were in that part so again this to protect privacy of course but while in that area she had the toilet seat and she would just like follow the learner around with it and as soon as they started peeing she just like toss it under them to like catch um catch it but that obviously you know the the learners were only like three or four and they had their own private space where they were doing that Um, but I think for me, that would be something I'd be comfortable doing as a parent, but I don't necessarily know that I would have sent my son into a like preschool or daycare or center and been like, yeah, just, you know, toilet train him and like, let him not wear, you know, (laughs) just have him in his underwear (laughs) and like throw the toilet under him when he's ready. Um, that just, to me, that brings up some like privacy issues, but anyway, that is something that some people do. Um, for obviously for adults, for the location and whatnot, um, again, we're, that's it's get, going to get a little bit trickier. So just keep in mind for this particular discussion, we're mostly focusing on this like, um, you know, two to five year range because that's what the particular procedure is that we're talking about. Um, so if there's people have questions more for like older learners or adults, we can definitely do a follow up podcast or training or something on that. Okay, so the next one is to gather your supplies and it gives a list of supplies, a potty chair, food and drinks, a doll with a removable diaper. Um, Encourage to have a doll that urinates if possible. I don't even know if they still make those, Um, but you can also use an ordinary doll um, if you are prepared to handle the special effects (laughs) of like making them pee or whatever. Um, So not getting into the the actual what they are the supplies but why would you think like why is it important to have your supplies prepared and like are there any issues you could see with doing that um my thing i mean it's important to have your supplies so then you're able to input i mean use them whenever you need them um also if this is four to six hours you're gonna need a lot of supplies because i can imagine if you need to run to the kitchen or something to grab a drink or something and you come back and they have an accident then according to this article you have to do that punishment procedure which you know i don't like either but i mean it it just seems like it's counterintuitive and then also your learner could escape too yeah. So especially if you're trying to keep them in one room, which I don't agree with anyways. So 
I um, I definitely was the victim of that a few times with uh, Taylor. <laughs> where it's like, I just, I need to go to the bathroom or like, I need to get like something to eat. And he'd be good, good, good. I'd time it when he shouldn't have to go. And it was like, as soon as I walked out of the room, <laughs> come on. Um, but anyway, so I, yeah, I, for having your supplies with you, I, I can't really think of any issues. Yeah. You know, again, we'll talk about the actual supplies in more detail when we get into the procedures, but um, I used a clipboard that um, that can open. So I kept like sticker, some stickers and like um, some snacks and stuff in there. And then uh, sometimes people will wear like a fanny pack or an apron or something to keep with them as well. So that you're, you have your supplies, you know, readily available. And like everywhere we, we go, I just like take the potty chair with me. Um, so I haven't, I have never had issues arise with like keeping supplies nearby. But one I actually just thought of. So if you have a learner where you've got the supplies and things are going all right, but for whatever reason, something happens and maybe you force too much, you pushed it too hard, they're over it. They are so over to <laughs> um, And like a break is needed of some sort. So if you're trying to like get back into a groove of like, you know, just being what, you know, Greg Hanley and his colleagues would talk about happy, relaxed and engaged and just get back on like a positive track. And like, you've kind of even set toileting aside for a second. If you're continuing to bring the supplies around with you everywhere, that's obviously not going to go over too well. Um, I have had learners where things, um, you know, not for when we were there, but like in their past, maybe somebody had tried to do toileting before or something, certain stimuli did get a negatively conditioned. And, you know, as soon as we would pull that stuff out, they were like, you know, major, major difficulties. So that's obviously something to be prepared for and like have an a backup plan for, especially if you're training either parents or like technicians or paraprofessionals to implement some sort of toileting program. Like, what do you do if the learner starts um, having a reaction just to seeing the supplies present, then you're yeah. going to have to have a backup plan for that. Yeah. And then you also need supplies for yourself too, if you're going to be there four to six hours. Yep. Yep. Exactly. All so. right. Um, the next thing they say is dress your child in loose fitting training pants. So underwear, <laughs> um, with nothing else over top. And then it mentions like extra clothing can hinder children from pulling their pants down quickly. So why is this important and what issues could arise? I would think that it's that, you know, having extra, I, I don't know, like for me, like, I mean, I, I, my first reaction is like, you know, why have, I mean, why not have the extra clothing? Because you want to be able to them to train in the natural environment, like what they're naturally going to wear, like underwear and then pants and then a t-shirt, you're going to want to train that. But I mean, but now I'm not sure about sure about what my my initial reaction is because of what I've been reading. So Megan, can you help me? Yeah. So um, for me, when I see this one, like the loose fitting training pants, I, again, if it's in the child's home and especially if like it's their parents implementing, I don't see an issue there. If the, um, if there's a, if it's a younger learner and the parents have enlisted, you know, um, assistance from a babysitter or a technician or a grandparent or whoever, and all parties seem to give consent to that, including the child, 
um, having them like running around in their underwear, it's probably not a big deal at their own house. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like not a big deal. But if, um, this is another one that comes up, right? Like if they're at school or in a center or something, you're not going to have, whether it's a young learner and especially if it's an adult, you're not going to have yeah. them running around in their underwear. So, um, so that's something again, that to kind of think about if, you know, how, what are you going to do there? If you have a learner where it's difficult for them to like get their pants off and on, that might be something you address first before going into toilet trainings, just to make it a more uh, positive experience for them. Um, if you, if, if it's, if that's not an issue and they like the pants go up and down just fine and whatnot, if you're in a public setting, like a school or a center, you're likely going to need to just give yourself a little bit more time. So if the learner is on like a 15 minute schedule, you know, make sure you get, you might set your timer a reminder to go into the bathroom or near wherever you're using for the toilet at like 14 minutes, right? So that you have the time to like take the clothes off. Okay. And then I, I, I heard that like, you know, bare bottom, um, toilet training is good too. So yes, that's on, that's one of the ones I have to talk about for at the end. <laughs> okay. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> we do have a question in the comments. I mean, yes, I comments. just responded, um, because I think that one it's talking about like holding bowel movements and I'm not entirely sure we're going to have time to touch on that. Cause we, so much to talk about. So I, I made a note of it and I put my email address. Um, okay. If they want to email me, we can chat about it more. Awesome. All right. So the next point is be prepared to get your child to drink fluids. If your child isn't thirsty, try offering him or her a salty snack and continue to encourage your child to drink throughout the training session. You want your child to experience frequent urges to urinate. So there will be plenty of opportunities to practice using the potty. So why, why would this step be important and what are some issues that could arise? I think it's important to have just those multiple trials to ensure the acquisition of the skill, but um, you might have some learners that, I mean, it might take multiple trials over several days. You're not going to be able to do that, uh, that one day um, acquisition of the skill. Um, I also have an issue with like trying to force feed or force uh have the child you know drink as much as possible if they were refusing it um just just to create the opportunity to go to the bathroom so what do you think megan yeah this is this this is one of the steps where it's like a perfect example of like differences in perspective so <laughs> we, we all would read this typically as behavior analysts and be like yeah yeah, that makes sense. You know, let's give them salty food and get that drink and take up so we can have multiple training opportunities, just like we can yeah. try banding and just like we set up like multiple practice opportunities when we're first teaching matching and like all of those types of things. Mm -hmm. But like you said, yeah. <laughs> if you have a learner who doesn't want to eat or doesn't want to drink, um, are we really force feeding? Like, is this really a thing we're going to do? And just also like how much is too much for multiple practice yeah. opportunities, right? Like, um, I've seen people try to do things that are just like the kid will do it. There's like a lot of compliance there for better or worse. So the, the child will eat or drink whatever is presented to them, but it's being offered on such a thick schedule and it's just whoa, like very, yeah. very negative experience. Um, so this is one that I'm actually still learning quite a bit about myself from just learning from different perspectives. 
I think the obvious one that we wouldn't hopefully have to talk to anyone about though, is if a person does not want to eat or drink, you do not make them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I hope we can all agree on that. Yeah. Um, so like, I, I think it's good to like have the things available and like have the snacks out or have the drinks out. You might even like when I did it with Taylor, I even explained it to him. I was like, Hey, we have all this stuff because I want you to get a lot of practice with going potty. <laughs> right. Like yeah. I just, you know, told him about it. He didn't, necessarily understand the first time we did it I think I tried I was very ambitious and tried to do it when he was like uh like 18 months or something ridiculous like that so we were not (laughs) successful um but I still like I explained to him like why um and I but I also think like it's important you know when you're making your plan so like if 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 you're a BCBA writing a, a toileting plan like if you wrote something like this in there if you went ahead and included that you would need to be very clear about the directions around that. Like how often um, are these snacks and drinks being offered? What do you do if they don't want the snack or the drink, right? Um, and yeah. like, where, what's your threshold? Because like I've had learners who don't really want to eat or drink, um, mm-hmm. but in general, they needed to eat or drink for their life, like for their lives, <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Like <laughs> it wasn't anything to do with toileting, like they needed it. Um, yeah. So we've set things like, you know, maybe... Um, every hour or two hours or something like that, you know, offer a drink and like, you might, um, encourage it more than like you typically would, but it's not a forced situation. And it truly is more for like, just being a, an alive person, you need to consume liquids. It's not so we can have more opportunities for you to toilet. I have taught learners to use the bathroom who only had three or four urinating incidents per day, right? And I still was able to to take those few opportunities and get them successful mm-hmm. with going in the potty instead or the toilet instead of their pants. So if if that's possible, I think we have to this is one of those things um where uh Merritt Shank, he did a presentation with me at ABAI on using sports with ABA and one of his quotes was you have to um, I'm not going to say it exactly, but it was something around the lines of like, you have to work within the rules of the game that you're given. Right. So like when you go to yeah. help people like learn how to be better baseball players, you have <laughs> that environment is what you're working in. So work with what you got, you know, and like yeah. make it successful based on what the learner's preferences are. That's awesome. So that's my little thing on that. Um, Okay. <laughs> That's it for like the, the like ascent initial like planning steps. So, <laughs> so the next like main step in the procedure is to use a doll to demonstrate the correct use of the potty. So in this step, you're modeling for the child, the different aspects of toilet training. So you're modeling like how to have dry pants, recognizing the need to go using the toilet and receiving reinforcement. And this step is repeated until the child seems to like understand, you know, all of those aspects relating to toileting. So why um, do you think this modeling step might be important? And what issues do you think could arise from this? So I think it's important to model and teach a skill. So because we're, the learner is uh, engaging in a skill that he has no history, like no history, or um, he doesn't have the skill set to um go to the bathroom on his own. So you had to train him or her on the steps. Um, my problem with it is like first, this requires parents to buy a doll that could be real expensive or doesn't even exist anymore. Um, another problem I see with this is that 
um, the learner could have difficulty learning this way. There are some um, learners that will not even understand if you repeat the step over and over with a with a doll, um, they might learn in a different way. So that's that's my idea when I read read this procedure. Yep, and I agree with each of those things. I. I actually hadn't thought about the like requiring the parents to buy things. I don't know why. Yeah. So that's a good point. Um, and what I thought about, I know, again, we're focusing more on like early learners, but obviously like for older learners and like adults, like how appropriate might that yeah. be? Um, the, the one piece that jumped out for me too is um, all of the research that's been done has been done um, using this as like a package. So I would be interested to learn more about like the importance of, um, you know, having the doll as, as a model, as opposed to, you know, whatever other things you might use. We use, um, with Taylor, we use Daniel Tiger has like an app <laughs> on toileting. And I loved it because it was like, it would show Daniel playing and it would be like, stop and go potty right away. <laughs> so, you know, just stopping the Excuse my bad singing. And I don't even think that was the right tune, but, um, so we, you know, once he was getting to the point where he was toileting, but he needed to like stop himself while he was playing and go, um, that was like really helpful. And he engaged, like you, you take Daniel to the toilet and like, it's just very interactive and you learn a lot of the components with that app. And it was like a dollar. Um, and then of course there's all sorts of like different books and stuff. He really liked the Elmo there was one from Sesame street with Elmo and like pooping and, and peeing that he really liked. So at, for his young age, like those were really helpful. I never did anything with a doll or anything like that. So I do think we do have sufficient research in our field, um, to show that, you know, the benefits of behavioral skills training and having that like modeling and role play with feedback. So like helping to explain like, Hey, we're going to learn how to use the toilet. And this is, you know, you need to pay attention to whether or not you're dry and like go sit here and like let the pee out or urinate or whatever words you're going to use. Um, so I do think that value of like having some type of model, whether you're like showing it through a book, whether you're just like physically walking them through it in like a yeah. neutral time. Um, if you're showing them through an app, I think the model piece is definitely important, but we need to think about, um, you know, also the preferences of our learners too. Mm -hmm if they're not really into dolls, <laughs> yeah. um, if there's other things that would be more interesting and motivating for them. Um, and then like you said, like obviously the supplies, like if that's, you know, cost prohibitive, it's probably okay. Um, yeah. I, I, the other piece that like jumped out at me is as you already mentioned this as well. If the and repeat until the child understands, like even with doing that, with Taylor, if I had waited until I was hundred percent sure he understood those models, we yeah. would have started a lot later, right? Like <laughs> we talked about this yeah. on our last uh, podcast that just came out yesterday about like sometimes the best way to learn something is to do it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> actually most of the time. So, yeah. um, so I think like, it seems like time might be wasted if you have a learner who maybe that model isn't necessarily like clicking for them and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting until it does. <laughs> Jenny said BST with Daniel Tiger. <laughs> Um, I love Daniel the Tiger. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> <laughs> I really wish though, I'm so disappointed, completely off topic, but maybe the Daniel Tiger creators will hear this. I really wish they had an uh like song or episode on like what to do when you're angry. They have different Ooh. things about like losing and like sharing and listening to your parents and like all sorts of stuff, but like 
when Taylor went through the typical like three and a half, four year old, like I'm so mad right now. And like, I'm and this is what I'm going to do with my body. He, like I really needed that and they didn't have it. <laughs> yeah. And you, you would think that they would have something like that. Um, because Daniel Tiger is so um, popular right now with that A troop too. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, back to toileting. Yeah. All right. So that's it with the doll. Um, and I should have mentioned uh, for those who are watching on Facebook live, we are kind of plowing through these because we, if you should see how long our <laughs> list is here of stuff to talk about, but feel free to like comment in like your own ideas about like why it would be important or what issues could arise. We may not read all of them off, but if you just want to participate in this exercise, feel free to do that. If you're listening at home while we're talking, feel free to be thinking for yourself of like what, what the importance would be or what issues could arise. All right. So the next component is the actual toilet training. We kind of already touched on this one. Um, encourage your child to drink fluids is the first part of the toilet training. So I feel like we covered that already. Do you think we need to talk about that more? No, I don't. I think we already covered that pretty well. All right. So then the next step is when your child is ready to urinate, help him or her sit on the potty. Why would that be important? What issues could arise? Um, it's, it's important to, um, to like have them be able to sit on the party, but maybe that would be an important skill that you taught them before you decide to, um, go ahead with this procedure. I think they, they need to have that skill even before you start that. Um, what's your thoughts? I think that's a great point. So, um, we've kind of mentioned this a bit already too, but that might be something you, you practice outside of even starting toilet training of just like, uh, and I, I like had our, um, toilet little potty seat out and about and like let Taylor investigate it and be curious about it before, um, we even started. But I think like, you know, that could be some good prep beforehand of just like, mm -hmm. Hey, let's sit on this thing especially if they're older and they need to sit on like the bigger toilet and it can be kind of scary just practicing that in and of itself, potentially using shaping. If they're like, as soon as they walk in the bathroom and you show them the toilet, they're like, no, thanks. Um, so I think that there's two things for me about it. One, that initial practice before you even decide to start toileting Two, um, if you don't do that or, you like realize when you're trying to practice that like the learner whether it's a skill deficit, some learners like the standing up and like squatting down in, in and of itself is very um, effortful for whatever reason based on like their motor development. So that might be something you have to build fluency with because if you think mm -hmm. about it, when you're toilet learning how to toilet in the urinate in the toilet, you're standing up and sitting down a lot throughout the day. So that's like an extra um, stressor on those muscles. So that might be something you need to like build up at first. If it's a learner where you can just sort of like plop them on the toilet, as long as they're calm with that, um, then that's fine too. But when you're thinking about implementing a toileting procedure, looking at these steps as we go through them or whatever steps you come up with, each of those steps, you, if you're not already doing what Joe and I are modeling right now of like thinking about what the potential issues could be or like what changes you would make to be more humane, um, I definitely encourage you to, and consider it an assessment of sorts, right? Like, okay, 
drink fluid. They, they're going to have to have some fluids in them. Does my learner actually drink things throughout yeah. the day? <laughs> Is that something I might need to work on first? Um, encourage, you know, help the child to, to sit, um, to urinate. Does this learner, you know, have does an this, aversion to sitting? <laughs> does this so, learner have any medical issues? You know, right. yeah. So like, like all of those types of things should be assessed. Um, mm-hmm. Any of the skills around toileting need to be assessed before you just like dive on in and like start your toileting program. Um, what, the other issue that I could think of, it doesn't like jump straight out here, but it doesn't, it doesn't say right here, like, okay, when your child is ready, help him or her sit on the potty. It doesn't say if your child resists sitting, make them sit anyway, but they do have a follow through component with this. So like, that's an issue that could arise, right? Like if I yeah. said, okay, it's time to sit here, sit down. And the learner doesn't want to, what do I do? Am I making them sit there? Yeah. Is that what's happening? Um, Is that ethical? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, when I, when I first started in the field, yep, that's what we would have done. We would have just placed them right on there and, and like, you know, they would have sat there and we may have sat and like held them there, um, you know, to, to toilet. And that obviously makes it aversive. So it, we have to either, again, use shaping if they're not going to sit on the toilet, come up with what the step is that they would, if they're not ready to, to sit, maybe it's just, Hey, come stand in the bathroom with me. Awesome. We did it. You know, <laughs> reinforcement, um, yeah. for Taylor, he would have his ups and downs. And sometimes what, what it was is he didn't have to, after like the first day, especially he didn't have to go. <laughs> Yeah. So we didn't want to sit because he didn't have to go. And he was like, this is like, I don't want to stop playing if I don't have to pee. So we had to work on, I taught him like, Hey, if you don't have to go, just say, I don't have to go. Right. Yeah. Um, so there might be other like, you know, functional communication phrases or signs or whatever you're using that you might teach as well. If you're trying to like have them sit and they don't have to go for them to like, say, I don't have to go yet. Um, so that's something I thought of as well. Like, I think a lot of people would read that and say, okay, well, I got to make that happen no matter what. And that's that a will create a very aversive situation and really condition toileting as aversive most likely, but B mm-hmm. um, it's not very humane either. <laughs> so yeah. um, I think that, you know, there's lots of ways you can entice and like create motivation around it. I had with Taylor, what I would typically do and with other learners as well as I would have like a certain, like, you know, picture on my phone or something. And I'd be like, Ooh, come check this out. And I'd like set it to where like, he would have to sit <laughs> on the toilet to like see the phone. Right. Um, so like, you know, engineering your environment in that way where it's just like, it's a natural occurrence to like have to sit there. Um, if you, if you have a situation where a learner like isn't, um, isn't necessarily like readily doing it, but you also don't want to just like trick them all the time either. So there's like a fine balance, right. Of like the importance of having this happen now, um, versus doing it, uh, later when like, if I had tried, even if I had tried that, like held the phone there and been like, Hey, come check out my picture and like positioned it to where Taylor would have to sit on the toilet. If he didn't have to go, he still would have been like, no, I don't just show me the picture. (laughs) Right. So like you have to be flexible and like ready to, to be on your toes about like, are we really doing this right now? Yeah. Yeah. So one of our, uh, comments is, uh, make fun, silly potty songs to help sitting on the potty more fun, especially if music is reinforcing to learner. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that idea. 
And that one's obviously going to be a lot easier to do with the little ones like we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, that with, you know, adults and whatnot, you're going to have a completely different, different way of addressing all of this. So I do just going to keep throwing that out there. We're talking about the little ones right now. Um, and then Needy said, can visual prompts or schedules be used? And uh, Robin and some others chimed in on the chat that yes, like yeah. that can be really helpful. I don't recall, I don't think I had to do that with Taylor for like the toileting process. But once he was getting better with toileting and, um, and just like his nightly routine and things like that, it was on his schedule um, because otherwise he would, would resist going. <laughs> so, <laughs> but if it was there and it was like, okay, we're going to you know, eat dinner and then we need to go potty and then we're going to read a book or whatever, like as long as it was on the schedule, it was fine. But if it was like me just randomly telling him like, hey, stop what you're doing and go to the bathroom. No. Yeah. All right. Next step, praise and reward each successful act of urination in the potty. Why is this important and what issues could arise? Well, praise and reinforcement is crucial to increase those behaviors that we want the learners to engage in. Um, however, I, I know there are some learners out there that praise is not reinforcing to them. So, um, we had to come up with a different way of, um, reinforce, I mean, reinforcing them. Um, also, I also think that, you know, we should be praising them just for even getting to the potty or, um, or even sitting on it. I mean, like it, it just depends on the learner. What do you think, Megan? Yeah, I agree. I think like, you know, for a general <laughs> parenting <laughs> book as a recommendation, yeah. like, um, this is what is said in that blog. I'm sure the book goes into more detail about the rewards and things like that. But obviously, you know, especially as behavior analysts, you might be writing toileting. It's important to consider what your rewards actually are um, and whether or not they are reinforcing. Um, but uh, we've had situations where um, you have to be clear about what your priorities and your goals are. So Mm -hmm. Uh, we had times where like we were shaping and just working on like sitting on the toilet and the learner very quickly figured that out. So like he would just go over and sit on the toilet and hold out his hand for an M&M. &M. <laughs> so you have to be prepared for that happening as well. Like what are your criteria for this and like helping, um, you know, and we, we actually just explained to him, it was like, Oh, you want an M&M, &M, but this is for when you're peeing. <laughs> So like come over here and like ask for an M&M &M or whatever. So like we helped because it was basically a defective man, right? Like yeah. instead of just telling us he wanted an M&M, &M, he went and sat on the toilet, even though he didn't have to go. Um, so we had, we addressed that pretty quickly, but some people might not, you know, think to look out for that. Or like if you're, if you have parents or um, non-behavior analysts like implementing and they're, they're going to be doing it for a little bit by themselves, having these like, you know, troubleshooting type things, like if you know, if the thing you're using doesn't seem reinforcing, this is what you do. If it's, you know, reinforcing, but um, they're trying to over like do the sitting on the toilet just to get it, <laughs> this is yeah. what you do. Like, so, you know, having that, that troubleshooting in place. Um, I think for, I think this is one where I don't, I'm again, still learning. So I would be curious to hear more from different perspectives, like outside of behavior analysis, what are some of the issues they might see with that? Um, but I, I think like the main ones that would arise of like, 
you know, learners only going to the bathroom to try to uh, at contact reinforcement or something, or like sitting on the toilet to contact reinforcement um, to like having a, a faulty connection there um, should be controlled if you're using, like if you're properly explaining what's happening and delivering the reinforcement in a, a schedule, moving things along um, as quickly as necessary. And then we've already talked about this a few times, but that shaping piece comes back in as well. So like this says praise and reward for each act of urination. When you first start different learners, maybe at different spots on like what they're being reinforced, what, what, how they're contacting reinforcement. Right. So, um, Hey, there may be a learner who is, um, not very happy about the presence of the toilet. And the initial thing you're doing is just reinforcing for that. Right. Um, and if, if they happen to sit and go, then, you know, a bigger party needs to happen about that. So being clear with whoever's doing the toilet training, like what exact responses are contacting reinforcement. And it may be less than just, you know, urinating. It might include a wide array of things. Okay. So the next part is um, every 15 minutes or so, ask your child if his or her pants are dry. So why would this be important and what issues could arise there? So it's important to be dry because um, I think it's important to be, so then the learner knows like, hey, am I dry? But I thought that would be a skill that they should, that would be like one of those prerequisite skills I would want to make sure they know before starting this procedure. Um, what do you think, Megan? I agree that it's something that is helpful for them to understand. Typically, we've this is one where we we do like both things at the same time. So we'll be, you know, working on urinating in the toilet while also teaching how to recognize if you're wet or dry. Or the like, if a leading up to it though, if you have like a learner who's in diapers, I would encourage the family or whoever is working on the toileting to be talking about that, right? Oh, your diaper's still dry. That's cool. You're dry right now. Oh, your diaper's wet. You know, and like starting to expose mm -hmm. to those concepts. Um, but if if they're um, if they're not like accurately, you know, answering about that, I think you could, for me, at least in my experience, you can still start and like that skill comes online faster. But that what I've seen happen is people don't incorporate that part. They just focus mm -hmm. on going and like urinating in the toilet and they never focus on that, like checking yourself and like self-management piece of it. So they'll have learners who um, still have a lot of accidents and it's because they don't have that skill. So for whatever reason, when implementing the procedures for toileting, that seems to be a step that a lot of people think is optional <laughs> to like <laughs> learn about being dry or wet. Um, and I, I just don't think it is. Um, yeah at least in my experience. And sometimes I've had learners where that was like such a deficit that we did put the toileting part on hold, actually like going to like sit in toilet. And we just focused on like, let's, you know, build reinforcement around like staying dry. Um, but it, you have to be careful too, because it can go too far the other way. And that's one of the issues I was going to bring up. I've had people give too much reinforcement for being dry. So then the learner is like holding because they're oh, contacting yeah. so much reinforcement every time someone checks or has them check themselves, if they're dry, they get access to some like great thing. They're like, Oh, I gotta, gotta stay dry. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you have, to, again, that's another like balance that has to come in where, you know, being really 
careful to observe like what's happening here and, and make sure you're not putting too much reinforcement in and, and move things along once the skill is starting to emerge. Um, with that. And this is another one where issues can come in around like privacy and protecting, um, the learner's privacy. Again, being a mom, when I did this with Taylor, like I would help him feel, and like, I was fine with that because I'm his mom. But when you're looking at other uh, adults working with young children, or Mm -hmm. of course, if you were working with an older learner or an adult, uh, or adult learner, um, that would be very invasive. So you would want to come up with ways to like have them help, like learn to check for themselves. Um, if they're, if they're dry or not. Um, I have also heard like criticisms of just this step. Um, I, this is one that I have down to discuss further with, um, some folks from the neurodiversity movement to, to see, like, to learn a bit more, but yeah. For me right now, I can't say like, don't do this step because I've never been successful with a, a learn. I shouldn't say never. It's been difficult to be successful with like the skill of recognizing if you're wet or dry is not present. Yeah. And then I, um, I also rather would, I would rather ask, um, it like every 15 minutes, Hey, do you need to go to the bathroom rather than if you're dry or wet? Now I could be wrong with that too. But that's just my initial take too. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you can tie it in that way, like, oh, you're like for, with um, just keep referencing Taylor because that's the most recent one yeah. I've done. But <laughs> oh, you know, hey Taylor, you're 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 still dry. That's so cool. And like when we were early on in the program, um, it's like, oh, you're still dry. That's so cool. It's only been a few minutes, so we'll keep playing. You know, then like the next time we check, like, oh, are you still dry? Yeah, cool. Um, it's been a little bit, we should try to potty, you know, um, versus like if then if, you know, he was wet, like, Oh, you're wet. It looks like, you know, oops, (laughs) we'll talk about that part in a second, but, um, we would talk about that too. And give that feedback. Uh, generally said, this is a step that we manage during teaching. I teach my staff how to comment on wet versus dry and differentially reinforce. Yeah. Um, and then Robin said, pants checks is huge. I normally ask about pants being dry and then ask if need to go potty. I do both. Yep. And that's good to like tie that in as well. I think sometimes, sometimes people are too, um, for, for weeks on end in months, they're telling the learner when to go and then they they get confused as to why the learner doesn't initiate going to the bathroom. <laughs> it's like, well, you never worked on that. <laughs> like you've yeah. been developing this history for a long time of like, I just tell you when you need to go. Um, so we're not going to talk about initiating today because we still have quite a bit to cover, but that's yeah. another one um, that we could talk about at some point. Awesome. All right. Here it is, the last part of the procedure. But don't worry, we still have a few more points to talk about. Oh, yeah, definitely a lot more. But. <laughs> in, case you, in case you were wondering. Um, if your child wets his or her pants, follow through with overcorrection, um, the research and book also indicate using stern disapproval. So why would that be important and what issues could arise? And the overcorrection piece for those who aren't familiar with the rapid toilet training is positive practice where you, you like point out that they're wet, you walk them to the bathroom or wherever the, the toilet chair is, you have them sit down, like go through the steps of toileting and then, um, and, and then like clean up and stuff. Some people will say like to do that like five times. Um, some just do it the one time, but that's, that's the piece that, um, is being talked about. So what were your thoughts on that, Joe? I mean, I'm, this is one I, I, I had difficulties with because like, just for me, um, 
I just thought that depending on the age of the child, this could be a very traumatic experience. Just in my, just my thoughts about this, but um, I can see where, you know, you just have to go if they do wet their pants. Do you have to do that follow through? Like, hey, you need to go here to the bathroom. But um, the overcorrection and the stern disapproval—that's that's where I have issues with. Um, what do you think, Megan? Yeah. So we talked about this at the beginning too. Um, the, like, it just baffles me that like you would incorporate a punishment procedure for a skill acquisition program. Like I, there's no other skill acquisition program I've ever learned where that's a component. Um, and you know, there, sometimes people will say like no or whatever, and and you could consider that like punishment, but it's not as invasive as this. Um, So that's my big first like red flag on that. Like, why are we doing that um, right off the bat? Like, would that not make this aversive? So um, Mm -hmm. I obviously like there needs to be feedback given, right? Like, oh, you're wet and like corrective. Like, so remember we need to pee in the toilet and like, depending on the learner's vocal uh, skills, you might ask them to like tell you like what they should have done or something like that. But it, for me, at least, if a learner is having an accident do- during like this toileting process, that's on me. I didn't <laughs> initiate that early enough, right? Like my, I haven't been monitoring things well enough. Um, and it's going to happen. There will be accidents because that's part of the process. So then you just have to reflect upon like, oh, okay, well, I thought we could go every 30 minutes, but I guess we need to do every 20, right? And you just like adjust what you're doing. But that's something that obviously needs to be built into like your protocol of like, how are you reviewing your data and just determining like how often to go and stuff like that. Some learners, we decide how often to go, not based on like a set amount of time elapsing. And this was true for Taylor as well. I did that initially, but then over time, it's like, I saw more clear of a pattern of once he has a drink, if he drinks like at least four ounces within 15 minutes, he's going to have to go. So like, it might be based more off of like their fluid intake behavior and like what, how long they're holding it before they have to go. Um, and like a combination of those factors too. So like, you have to be really on top of reviewing those types of things to, um, to, to cut down significantly on the accidents. I mean, obviously like punishment's a way that someone could try to do it, but I, I've never felt comfortable doing that. And also, um, besides the fact that it could be incredibly aversive and just like destroy the whole process. I have had learners who like, it's funny for them um, to like, like maybe, you know, when I was a grad student or whatever, and and, like, that was what I was trained to do. And we would try to do the overcorrection and they were like, just thought it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, so sometimes like they, they legit seem to have accidents on purpose to be like led through the overcorrection process. (laughs) So, um, So that's like a more fun aspect, I guess. But uh, either way, like whether it ends up being reinforcing or if it's too aversive, I just don't, it doesn't sit well with me. I don't see it. Now that doesn't mean like I have had some learners as they get older and they have the skills down and I've done, I had to do this with Taylor too. He would choose to keep playing instead of stopping and going potty. So we might do like a brief timeout after he would have an accident. But that was like me as mom choosing you know, you can't play with any of your toys and I don't set them in a location. It's just like your toys are up for a few minutes because you chose to keep playing instead of stopping and going to the bathroom and you're in underwear, you know, like, you know, the drill by now. Um, but that's like way down the road and like a last resort, um, when like reinforcement isn't working in the 
the play in and of itself is too reinforcing. I've also done, which I tried with him, but it wasn't as successful. Like again, watching that time. Okay. He had a drink. He's going to need to go in another, like in about an hour. So around like 55 minutes, I would do like the, okay, we're taking a break from playing for a bit. So it's just like boring for him and he would go to the bathroom. Um, but again, that's all stuff that's like down the road. This isn't mentioned in this particular section, but we talked about it already too. Like part of this like follow through piece is like physically prompting through. So it's not just about the overcorrection. It's the battle that I'm also picturing could happen where if I'm like, you had an accident, now we need to practice this. Or we've talked about earlier, if I tell you to go to the bathroom and you resist and a lot of people were trained and it's in the research to just like physically force that to happen. especially with like, you know, two to five-year-olds, because usually they're little enough that you can just manhandle them. But that doesn't make it okay. (laughs) doesn't mean you should do it. And I definitely would never. Um, It's on me to figure out how to make that a more positive experience and like motivate and encourage it to happen from their own free choosing, not my forcing it to happen. Yeah. So, um, so just give us like a two sentence, uh, snippet of like, what would you do here? Would you do any of it, part of it? Oh, if they had an accident or of the whole procedure? Just a whole procedure. Is there anything with this procedure you would do? (laughs) Right. Um, Well, and you know, we didn't even talk about like, there's, there's other things I've seen done incorrectly. So if we have time at the end, we'll do that. But um, like I said, I think the pant, the dry pants checks are huge. Like that's a very important factor. Um, and obviously, you know, realistic, frequent practice and reinforcing for, you know, you being successful, um, in the toilets, I think are like the three big ones for me. Um, but I don't want this to come off. Like we're just saying like this procedure is crap or anything like that. I'm not saying that I'm, we're, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, we're doing this as a way to model how you can like review, a procedure that exists, especially one from the mainstream within behavior. It's a behavior analytic procedure, but it's out out in the mainstream, how to review that and like critically think about it. So, um, that those are the ones I would do. What about you, Joe, from our discussion? I I think that, I mean, uh, we're, we both are very similar. I know, um, I would still do the same procedures that you discussed, but, um, for me, I think personally, like I really would want to research even more um, on this topic, just because I mean, like I, I mean, like after reviewing this, I know there are other procedures out there. And I, I just wonder if there's a blend of different procedures that you can blend together to make a uh, make a better procedure, and then it's also just tailored to um, the individual learner too. Yeah. And I think like you hit the nail on the head there with like, there's a variety of different things out there. And I think far too often in our field, I know this was the experience I had this, this procedure, this rapid toilet training is laid down as gospel. Um, This is it. This is what we do. This is, (laughs) this is it. Um, And there's not like an attempt to learn about the different procedures that are out there and do exactly what you said. Like, for anything, whether it's, you know, toilet training, teaching, matching, teaching, requesting, like whatever it is, we should be aware of like the wide array of options around how to do that. So with each learner, we can individualize and come up with a plan that's most effective for them. 
And I just, this is one that I don't see that happen very often. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, <laughs> given <laughs> the wide use of this procedure in our field, what do you think the research is like in this area? Um, so I'm just going to throw that out as a question, like given that, like, I mean, I couldn't go to a behavior analytic program, you know, run by any consultant in Ohio or mm -hmm. when I went, moved to Florida, moved to North Carolina, like everywhere I've been in behavior analysis, this is what the toilet training programs are based off of. So with that being said, there's got to be a ton of research on this, right? Yeah, there has been a there has supported evidence-based field. Yeah. I mean, like I, I would think that the, there's recent research, like probably 2018, 2019 that we can look at um maybe some in 2010 that early 2000s era era i think that's would be reasonable right that that would be a reasonable expectation <laughs> so, uh let's run through it so i i will give the disclaimer i did like a quick literature review before we did this episode um so i i could be missing some things so feel free to let me know if i am on not toilet training in general, I'm just talking about the rapid toilet training, Fox and Azarin, that. The original study, as I mentioned, was published in 1971. So that's almost 50 years ago. Before I go into the additional research, why is that important to understand? Like if you were reviewing this article with a trainee or like anyone else, why would it be important to know like wh when this study is from what and like what the historical context is? Well, it's important to see if this study has been done recently because 50 years ago, I mean, a lot of things, I mean, like the difference in time, I mean, the time gap is huge. Like 50 years ago, this would have, this might have been uh, a great study done um, back 50 years ago. Also, a lot of procedures and expectations in studies have changed since then too. Um, so I would think it would be important historically to see, um, just to see what the expectations were when the study was, um, conducted. Yes, exactly. So it's important to understand, you know, what the, just the research realm was like back in the seventies, right? That's before most of us were born. Yeah. Um, and even if we were born, you were still probably pretty little, you weren't conducting research yet. Um, so it's important to just understand like what, what, what did research look like then? What, what was the IRB process like in getting things approved and what was even the knowledge base? So like what previous research had been done on teaching toileting skills, um, all of that kind of stuff. And that original study was done, the, the purpose of it, according to the study and like um, their book and everything was they had encountered a situation where people at, at that, and they, you know, this was in the 70s. So they refer to it as people with mental retardation, but people with disabilities were in institutions or hospitals or whatever usually bed bound, um, in diapers, having someone change their diaper all the time. So they wanted to demonstrate that you could use behavior analytic principles to get successful independent toileting behavior. Um, when, within doing that though, again, it's from the seventies. So there are things they did then that we would not consider or should not consider humane now. <laughs> for example, the stern disapproval, yelling at a, someone for having an accident, and even the overcorrection part. So 
I think it's important when we're looking at these, like, that's amazing that we had these groundbreaking people doing research and like helping to get more independent skill sets happening for populations that especially at that time were by and large, like nobody did anything about and like nobody wanted to like help. Right. So it's huge that like these people were stepping into that space and like conducting that research, but it also was 50 years ago. So it's very (laughs) rare that you should find an article from 50 years ago and be like, yes, I can apply all of these same things now with the knowledge we have now about the human experience. Like, that's not going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> I hope. No. But ethic, as we ethic, mentioned, go ahead. I, said, I was just going to say, like, ethics has changed since then, too. Like, what's ethical anymore is different than what it was 50 years ago. I'm only, I'm 35 years old, and the ethics, like, when, like what was ethical when I was a kid is completely different now, too. Exactly. Right. So, um, so I think that's important. Like those are discussions you should be having if you're training people in the, you know, if you're a professor or you're a supervisor, you know, don't just be like, well, these are the procedures that were published and like people use for toileting, like have that discussion. What's the historical context? What about this is like no longer okay to do. Um, and probably, you know, arguably wasn't technically okay then, but that's like what the culture was. Mm-hmm. And what the, you know, it was actually better than what a lot of people were experiencing. So I think that's important to recognize. The other piece of it is um, they took that research and then applied it with, um, you know, trying to get more into the mainstream and, and use like for parenting and, and publish to like anyone with a, yeah. a child that needed to toilet train. So what's interesting though is um, there was some additional research done at that time by Fox and Azarin. Um, on their procedures, there were also some other psychologists, Mazden and Spock, who were doing research on like teaching typically developing children how to toilet um, and how to do it in like a rapid way. Um, relating specifically to Fox and Azarin applying to typical development, in 1973, there was a study of 34 children and it was 97% effective. 1977, Candelora um, had an unpublished dissertation comparing rapid toilet training with the gradual approach from Spock. And there were 72 children um, and they had earlier improvements with rapid toilet training. They were aged 18 months to 35 months. 1976, Butler had um, 49 children and coached parents and showed 77% effectiveness, but depending on age. 1977, Matson and Olendick compared parent implemented to trainer implemented and they were successful four out of five times with the trainer but only two out of five times when the parents were implementing it. Um, and in large part, because of, uh, you know, what we were talking about earlier with like the overcorrection and some of the just like not being feasible. But what do we notice about these dates? 1973, 1977, 1976, 1977. They're still in the 70s. Yes, right? Like all of that is still from the 70s. Now, again, I'm just on rapid toilet training. I'm not saying there wasn't additional research done um, on toilet training since then, but that was like the bulk of the research was in the seventies. And if we, I mean, I know we love single subject design, but this is like, uh, not even 200 children total. And this is what we're using as gospel to like guide toilet training procedures. And like, people are adamant about, you must do it this way. And (laughs) we're still having these discussions and we're in 2020 now. And it's like so long ago. Um, and the other thing that I had an issue with too is um, 
is that this was on a parent blog in 2020. And there's like, oh yeah, it just seemed it's the results seemed like they had lots of success, but there was no data to like really support this in the parent blog, which I have a problem with because you're telling parents that, oh yeah, use this procedure, it's effective, but yet that data was from 1970. Yeah. So I do I think, think I think in the blog they do recognize that though. They say yeah. and they have like a second blog that I linked, um, and it's like parenting science. So okay. the second blog that um is overview of like all the different toileting procedures, but like the whole their whole thing throughout both is yeah, there's not a lot of research on these things. <laughs> Which to be honest is just blows my mind because this is a procedure that's technical but also is so um, so needed and everyone has to go through some type of toileting training for their learner. Like this is something that's essential yep. to train. Yep. So why don't we have like updated research that's conducted like every five years, you know, yep. on this? Yeah, like everyone has to learn how to use the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> so you would think there'd be more stuff. Um, yeah. So one of the quotes from the blog, this is directly from the Parenting Science blog, it says, as researchers at the University of Alberta note, more studies are needed to determine if any one potty training method is better than the rest. We also need more research to investigate how the individual characteristics of parents and children might affect potty training success and whether or not there are any long-term adverse side effects associated with particular toilet training techniques. And that was in reference, part of that was in reference to what we talked about earlier with like the overcorrection and like forcing to sit on the potty at a certain time and stuff like that. So, um, you know, people could say like, it's effective in that, like my child learned how to like go to the bathroom, but then there's not that follow-up of like, you know, talking to the learner and finding out like what that qualitative experience was for them did it have any negative effects? You know, just like we've learned with spanking over the years, how mm -hmm. it can have effects down the line. There are ways of teaching, especially young children, certain things that work, <laughs> but that doesn't yeah. mean they're, they're like qualitatively great and like don't have adverse side effects down the road. Um, okay. So diving in, there is um, just a little bit more research to talk about. So uh, I mentioned earlier, Greer and colleagues published a component analysis. So they looked at, they kind of talked about how this was in 2016. And they talked about how like all of these toileting like packages are out there, but like people haven't really analyzed what components are effective <laughs> in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> um, so again, I may have missed something in my research on this, but, um, but that's just like mind blowing to me. So in their study, they looked at, um, they didn't look at uh, rapid toilet training in, just in and of itself. They looked at like um, using no diapers and like certain schedules of reinforcement and different things. I didn't type up notes on it, but I just wanted to point out that like a component analysis wasn't done on this until 2016. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. Um, yeah. Additional single uh, subject designs have been conducted within behavior analysis on toileting, as I've mentioned but not all of them are specifically focused on rapid toilet training. So there was a lit review published in 2020 um, and they, they just looked at the research done from 2009 to 2019. Um, and they found like th uh, thousands of article, like a thousand something 
Um, but they could only inco- incorporate 23 of those articles based on their inclusion criteria. And I just wanted to note like all of the variety that's out there in toileting. So they looked at certain um, independent variables. So this is a quote directly from the article. And it says, it is notable that all studies use toilet training programs and packages that mainly included applied behavior analysis strategies and techniques. Across 23 studies reviewed, the large majority included positive reinforcement. So 21 of the 23 studies. Um, Hydration and graduated guidance from errorless teaching methods were used in 10 studies, punishment procedures in six, and a urine alarm in five studies. Toilet training protocols in four studies included an elimination schedule, communication training, and video modeling. Uh, Both studies used decreasing the intensity of interaction with the participant in case of an accident, drive checks, scheduled chair sittings, and transfer of stimulus control, simultaneous prompting, and system of least prompts, and visual aids were included in one study. One study investigated the effectiveness of parent training program on the target skill, yet did not report which toilet training components were used. Um, so that's like a lot of different things, yeah. <laughs> right? And, that, um, and that's not like a whole procedure. That's like one snippet from toilet training too. Yes. Yeah. And I forgot to mention the citation for this lit review. It's from, um, and I, I have a whole reference list of, in case people are wanting to like really, uh, you know, dive in on toileting. I have a reference list of 44 articles that I'll include in our show notes. But the, the our lit review that I was just mentioning is from Sarl and Oki Kirkegal um, from 2020. And it was published in International Journal of Early Childhood Special Education. It's called Toilet Training Individuals with Developmental Delays, a Comprehensive Review. There was also a lit review done by um, one other person but I could not get access to the article to read it, but it was also older than this 2021. So I decided it was better to talk about that one anyway. Um, another quote from this article that I wanted to point out was from the results and it says, uh, or sorry, it was on social validity. And it says only 10 studies collected social validity data and all used subjective evaluation strategy to anal- analyze specific aspects of the intervention process. Seven of them collected social validity information from participants' parents, one from teachers, one from both parents and teachers, and one from teachers and paraprofessionals. What do you notice about that? Who are they collecting the social validity data from? They're collecting it from teachers, um, it, from teachers, but they're not um, collecting any, any data from the individual that is you know, learning about Right. Toilet training. Yeah. I mean, like that, isn't that the most important part is making sure that, you know, yeah. So only 10 of the 23 studies collected social validity data and none of them did anything to measure what the procedures were like for the actual person being toilet trained. Like what? What? We can do better. We can. (laughs) We can do better. All right. Last quote. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, uh, just, uh, I, so Courtney um, stated in the Facebook Live comments that toilet training trauma is a real thing. Yep. And I agree. I mean, like, that's why it's so important to um, be aware of what's ethical and what's in just to gauge how your learner is doing 
uh, throughout the process. So, yep. Um, so from the results, they concluded the current literature review indicated that most toilet training programs include components used in the earliest method, rapid toilet training developed by Azrin and Fox, um, and that there does not exist a standardized toilet training program. Thus, researchers compose toilet training intervention packages by components according to their preferences. In this regard, a number of prominent results that emerged in the current study may guide future research and practice for individuals with um, developmental disabilities. The only like one theme they found was that 21, like I mentioned before, 21 of the 23 studies included positive reinforcement. In conclusion, all of the toilet training programs in the studies included in the current study are derivatives and modified versions of the original Azrin and Fox study. Furthermore, no standardized toileting programs of fixed components for individuals with DD have existed ever since. So they published that first article in 1971, and we haven't like finalized <laughs> any A sort procedure. of like, best practice, critical features research since. And this article was published in 2020, right? Like this isn't outdated. Yeah. Um, then they go on to say, with respect to this issue, it can be concluded that toilet training programs, packages, or protocols are built according to researchers' preferences and participant characteristics. As such, there is still no agreement on a common toileting program in the literature. Therefore, further studies are needed to teach toilet training skills to individuals with DD. Do you think like when Fox and Azarin published in 1971 that they would imagine in 2020 we'd all be sitting here still with no like finalized like these yeah. and I, I this, get it like idiosyncratic wise um you're I'm hoping people would individualize to a learner and there would be like we mentioned different things to choose from but we should at least still have like identified these are the critical features you should be considering I agree I think there should be some type of critical features of a toileting procedure plan that should be implemented but there's none right now. Yeah. So hopefully, um, the at least the resources that we're providing to you all can like give you some ideas about like how to to break away from just knowing the the standard protocol that's you know trained down the line in our field and like see what other options are out there. We do have a webinar uh, that will be in the show notes that we did that I did a few years ago on like thinking out of the box with toilet training that focuses on some of the things that I've done um, that are really far off <laughs> from <laughs> Fox and Azarin. Um, before we talk about some of the alternative procedures, um, I also wanted to mention that Lit Review is freely available. So um, if you, I'll have it linked in the show notes because it's freely available, but you can also do a Google Scholar search. I'll put the reference in the Facebook chat for those of you who are watching live in case you want to like look it up right now, but you can download the article and read it for free, that literature review. Um, I just don't want to forget to talk about two things before we talk about alternatives. And I'm actually really proud of ourselves because we're just coming in at the two hour mark. So I, I know uh, we're doing yes. really well. <laughs> <laughs> um, one was uh, with the, with regards, we did not bring this up. And I, to be honest, because I, I didn't, I just didn't really review it as much as, um, I was reviewing so many other things. I just didn't mm -hmm. think to look this up. One of the common things I've seen in toileting practice is having a learner sit for like ever <laughs> on the toilet. Um, so that's one thing that in that webinar I talk about in a lot more detail, but I do want you to consider 
what that would mean and like what kind of aversiveness could arise from yeah. doing that. But I also wanted to share a little story where I, we, we were talking about location earlier and I have no idea why I forgot to bring this up as an example, but um, when we're thinking about, you know, trying to have like a set location for your toilet program, don't do it. If you're in a school, don't do it in the bathroom stall. Like, I feel like I shouldn't mm -hmm. have to say that, but that happened to me. I had a, a client and the mom contacted me and said, is it typical in toileting to like have the learner sit on the toilet the whole school day and bring him his lunch and he eats his lunch on the toilet? until he goes to the bathroom. I'm sorry. What? Wow. How could anyone think that's a wow. good idea? Like if I, when I hear those stories, I'm like, these, uh, these people have not learned that their clients are humans. Like that's the only explanation I can give for that. Like, why would you think it's okay? And this was an ABA based school. This isn't like a school that shouldn't like, you know, doesn't have the proper resources and like, doesn't know what they're doing. They were following to the T, whatever they were like rigidly trained on with toileting. And the rule was you sit on the toilet until you pee. This was a kid who held. So for eight hours, he didn't pee and they kept him on the toilet. Like, where does your common sense go? Where does your logic go? And like hygiene wise, even like, why would you think it's okay to eat food on the toilet like that? Like what? So, um, I hate to like <laughs> throw that in here as we're like working through all of this, but this is why I wanted to do this conversation today to really model how important it is to be flexible and like critically analyze the procedures that you're reviewing and looking at, whether it's toileting or anything else, like just because procedures were used a certain way, doesn't mean you then black and white apply that. And like, that's what you do. And like all out, no matter what the learner's doing or what responses they're giving, you just blindly keep doing that. Like that's not, yeah. how, that's not how our science works. So and you would think that a school district would have like common sense too. I know. I just, it was like, I texted her back immediately and said, tell them just to cease their program and we'll work on this when I get to your house. Like I can't, what? Um, so I, I wanted to bring that up before we go to our last part, which is just talking about, um, so I already mentioned like the literature review above discussed some of the different procedures used in toileting. Uh, so I wanted to see, Joe, if there were any other resources or procedures you were familiar with, but I think you mentioned at the beginning, yeah. like, this isn't something you've done a whole lot with yet. No, it's definitely not been something that I done. I mean, done, have done at all. Um, like I said, the closest I've been to is like a wiping program. Um, I just remember I have done a pers uh, program before where it's a, it was a dry or not dry program. But um, my majority of that, it was conducted outside of session. Um, and at that time, I was an RBT too. But um, other than that, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience. We never talked about this in my coursework. Um, of course, I did a lot of my supervision while I was at school and working with my clients. So um, I never had like any toilet training. Um, and that's why like it was really important for me, like whenever I heard you talk about like, Hey, let's do this podcast. I thought it was a perfect opportunity for me to learn more. 
and do better. So <laughs> awesome. And it was perfect for the model of like, let's critically think about this new person yeah. <laughs> who yeah. hasn't talked about this before. Um, so some of the things I was familiar with, uh, the no pants procedure, which you called bare bottom training. So um, Pat Fryman did a presentation on this at ABAI back in like 2010 or 2011. And it was just phenomenal. I think in the information that I posted from Boys Town, they probably talk about it in there as well. Um, but again, this is one from like a, a humane perspective and like privacy that a family might do with like their young learner, but you're not going to do this with like an adult or an older learner, or even if like people are coming into the house, you know, and, um, and like working with a child. I did, I had one situation one time where the family wanted to do the no pants procedure. So the, the learner wore like a long shirt. Um, so I couldn't see anything. Um, but the, and the, the rationale behind like the bare bottom training is twofold. One, we have a history <laughs> of, <laughs> you know, from birth peeing in our pants, right? Like peeing in our diapers. Yeah. So depending on, you know, if the learner is like two or three or even like four or five, they've had this long ingrained history of like, I just sit here and pee. So if you remove that stimulus and you take that away, that can help break that response chain. The other is it's easier to see if they start to pee and then you can like help them be successful by getting them on the toilet right then. Um, with Taylor, he had like enough control when we did it for a little bit. We didn't do it for days or anything. I think I just did it for a few hours just so I could see because I was having a hard time kept being successful. Um, and and I, he would stop. I'd be like, oh, you're peeing, stop. <laughs> and he could and he would and then he'd get on the toilet. So it was like, it was a necessary step for us for him to like, really get that sensation of like, Oh, this is, what, this is what's happening right now. Um, and that goes back to that, like punishment procedure piece too, because, um, up until I did that with him, he legit didn't know, like he did not, like there was a huge skill deficit there. Like he was surprised mm -hmm. that to like see that he was peeing, right? Like he would look down and be like, Oh, <laughs> there's there, right? So like, yeah. how are we going to punish that? Like he's learning. Um, so that's one, I don't know if anyone who's watching us live has ever heard about that procedure. It's also mentioned in that blog that we yeah. pulled some of this from, uh, there's apparently a, Dr. Schmidt and a Dr. Rosemond who talk about that. And you can find more information about that in the blog. Another resource that we've used is called Ready, Set, Potty by Brenda Batts. And uh, she's a mom of two, uh, two I think, boys that have uh, developmental disabilities. And it's, um, I really like the book because it sets up just like a really fun, motivating uh, toileting type program. So, and it has things in there about like helping the, the child be part of the process, like pick out their underwear, make it like a special day and like all of these kinds of recommendations. So it's a little bit more of like a positive approach. And then in the show notes, I have, uh, it's the parenting science link that says potty training techniques. And they're, they have like a whole blog, um, that lists off, you know, like five or six different, like common parenting ones that, you know, different psychologists have written about. Uh, so those are all, all the different options there, but by and large in our field, at least I, like the lit review said, most everything seems to be pulled from the Fox and Azarin original 71 article. Cool. I mean, that, that's really good. I all have to research, um, um, those articles to like read it and then really dive into it because like I said, I mean, like I'm, I'm learning. So 
But hey, Megan, in your experience, have you ever have you ever ran into a situation where you're like, okay, uh, when is the appropriate time to actual engage in like potty training? Like, because to me, like, I heard people say like, oh, sometimes you just got to wait until they're ready. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that is one of the really, like, I haven't looked at it in detail, but the Fox and Azarin book, Toilet Training in Less Than a Day, has a checklist for parents to fill out um, to see if their learner is ready. Mary Barbera also has a toilet training kit that that I have linked um, in our that webinar I was talking about. Yeah, that she did with uh, it's available for free if you just search Mary Barbera toilet training. That has okay. like, a whole slew of things to look at, not just toileting, but like we were talking about earlier, some of the daily living skills and things like yeah. that. But again, it's not. I mean, you saw the research, right? Yeah. Like, there's not, <laughs> there's there's not, not a research based on this somehow. So. There's things people have said from their own experiences of like, these things need to be in place to be successful, but there's not like a lot of research out there to, to, you know, validate those statements. So I, as everyone knows, I'm of definitely listen to the practitioner and listen to people's um, experiences. So I'm not like saying those don't count, but yeah. it, it would be nice to like validate this stuff too. So I will say uh, like I like with Taylor when he was 18 months and I tried it was just too early. He he definitely just didn't have any awareness at all. They a uh, one big recommendation for younger learners is that they have some sort of like understanding like they might be saying like pee peed or you know like they like realize they peed or pooped in their diaper um but I've definitely taught learners who weren't doing that and they were successful. So I think yeah. a lot of it has to do with like keeping it a positive experience, having that like ongoing ascent from your learner where like they're willing and want to learn how to do it. That was, I mean, surprise, that was like the biggest thing with Taylor is like he was had to consistently be motivated that like this was worth the effort. <laughs> right? Like otherwise, like, yeah. again, but again, I had the diaper thing pulling me down because he was just wearing diapers too. And like, couldn't get yeah. the rest of my family to like not do that. So it was like, mom, why would it? Why yeah. would I take the time to like go to the bathroom when I can just pee in my diaper? Yeah. Um, so I think like that's the biggest piece is like, again, going back to that, being able to shift and be flexible and like look at what responses your learner is giving you and then modify your protocol accordingly um, mm -hmm. is key, regardless of like all of the different potential variables that you would want to see as like these things have to be in place before starting. Another key though, is to have some sort of, strong relationship with the learner, whether yeah. it's the parents or, um, the, if there's like teachers or whoever, like if you have a learner that doesn't readily follow simple commands and especially doesn't follow commands to do preferred things, it's unlikely that you're going to get much progress here because it's an intensive, a lot yeah. of people do it in an intensive way where you're going to the bathroom initially every 15 minutes. Um, or even if it's not, if you decide to do a, a more gradual approach and just do like every hour, every couple of hours, that's still a lot of instructions that have to be followed. And if you don't have that strong relationship with your learner, they're not going to want to follow those instructions. Yeah. Like the value won't be there for them. Yeah. No, thanks, Megan. I appreciate that. Wow. Um, yeah. There's a couple of comments in Facebook Live. Uh, Barbara said, this is a normal procedure in Greece when we potty train our children. We manipulate the timing to do it in the summer so children can be without clothing, less mess too. 
of course we do it privately, no behavioral base, just culturally. So she's talking about the, the bare bottom training. Um, yeah. And that's common. Like, even if you Google it, all the, like, all the things talk about, like, do it in the summer. (laughs) It's nice. (laughs) Of course, if you live in Florida, you can almost do it any time of the year, but, um, and then there was mention about, um, some people are talking about just how like toilet going with what Courtney was saying about toilet training trauma being, um, real. There was some discussion around, um, having, you know, received clients who had apparently been through some trauma with toileting and, um, and having like some, you know, issues around like being able to then like safely work on that because there was so much trauma that occurred prior. So, um, and that what's good is that, uh, the people commenting are indicating, you know, they worked with the learner on that. There are other places that wouldn't do that. They just be like too bad. This is how we do toileting and you'll learn. Yeah. So, um, Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So. If you ever come across that place, that tells you like, no, this is how we do it. No other way. Get it, get away from that situation. That's that's just my two cents. Yeah, and whether it's toileting or anything. Yeah. Else. So, all right. Well, um, this was so much fun. We kept it almost to two hours. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed this model of how we can look at some of the you know effective procedures that exist in our field. This one was around toileting specifically. And, you know, we are super grateful to the people that came well before us and did this initial research and discovered these things. But we can also move the conversation forward and make sure that we're applying what they learned in humane and safe ways. And thinking critically about what aspects might need a little bit more detail or might need to be shifted or might need some troubleshooting and problem solving. um, And, you know, what to be prepared for when you go into that running that actual Mm -hmm. program. And even if there is more research that comes to light, um, comes or I mean, comes out about this, always to have that phys- philosophical doubt and skepticism, and do your research and ask questions. Never stop learning, but never stop asking questions either. Perfect. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast episode. Go forth on your quest to do better. Bye, guys. Bye.